0: let's open our class with a word of prayer dear heavenly father we thank you for the opportunity we have every week to gather together with your people lord it is a daily reminder when we flick on the news or look on the internet that we live in a world that is full of evil and wickedness and lord for a few minutes every week we get a reprieve when we gather together with your people in a safe place where we're free from ridicule and persecution. And Lord, we just have the opportunity to focus on you. I pray that you would help us today take advantage of that opportunity. Give us the ability to put aside all of the worries and cares and distractions which pull at our heart. And help us, Lord, to be able to focus on the teaching of your word, both in Sunday school and then in the main service with Pastor Steve and then in tonight's evening service. And I pray, Lord, as tonight is our church communion service for the month of december that even now you'll begin to help us examine our hearts to make sure that we don't have any unconfessed sins that would hamper our ability to celebrate the lord's table in the way that you desire so we pray lord that today would be a great day of learning and fellowship and everything else that we would need to help us to walk this week in a manner worthy of you we ask all these things lord in jesus name amen We are today continuing our study in 1 Peter, and if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you're not there, we're in chapter 1. Specifically, we find ourselves this morning at verses 14 through 16. And I think this is a wonderful text for me to end our teaching with, for us to think about over the next few weeks... We'll hear a lot of other good teaching. I'm looking forward to Pastor Steve's sermon this morning. I know we're going to get good teaching from our brother John. And this is sort of my last statement to you before Christmas. And it is a central text and a central truth. And I'm excited, even as I'm hesitant, to want to teach this material this morning I think the verses we're going to cover this morning really summarize what you could say is the objective, the ultimate goal of the book of 1 Peter. Beyond that, I think in some respects, in terms of someone who already has a relationship with Jesus Christ, this actually could be a summary of what our lives are to be. You could take it as a thematic verse. That would summarize all biblical teaching when it comes to the life of a child of God. In fact, if we can't apply and absorb the truths in these verses this morning, then really we're not going to get very much out of the rest of the book of 1 Peter. Because being able to do what is in these verses is really critical to everything else. In fact, I think everything else is really just an extension and application of the overarching truth found in these verses. Now, Peter, again, has been instructing a group of people who are genuine believers who have endured real hardship. And he begins his instruction not by coddling them or just patronizing them with a pat on the head and saying, there, there. He Wants them to think about themselves differently. Not for their sake. Put it another way. He really wants them to think about God differently. And their place in the sovereign order of things. And so his introductory words. The first 12 verses so to speak. Are really a brief theological summary. Of the privileges that are possessed as of now by a child of God. He recounts for them. The glory of their salvation. The fact that God caused them to be born again. God called them into a relationship with him. God provided the means of salvation. And even the hardships, even the things that were causing them pain, those were used by God to validate their faith. The writer doesn't want the believers who are going through hard times sitting around depressed and discouraged. Peter wants them to be praising the Lord for the privileges they have even when life is tough. In fact, they've got privileges. We have privileges in the Word of God that great Old Testament saints could only dream about. In fact, even that angels don't fully understand... So the writer doesn't want Christians who are going through a rough patch to say, Boy, this is terrible and I feel miserable. He wants them to be praising the Lord even in the rough patch because what they have is incalculable in terms of worth. And as we transition the last time I taught at verse 13, we have a key word at the beginning of the verse, Therefore. Therefore. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the writer is going to transition from this theological section, and it wasn't even a long theological section, it was more of an exhortation of a theological nature, but now he's going to get into living differently, how we put all of these things into action, and as I discussed in depth last time when I taught on verse 13... It all begins with having control over your mind. Sobriety in the context of this verse is actually talking about controlling your thinking. Being self-controlled over your thoughts. Focusing your mind not on mundane, distracting things, but on the ultimate thing, which is the hope we have in our salvation. The writer understands that to live correctly, we have to think correctly. To live out our faith, we have to think accurately, not only of our faith, but of our Lord, of our place in the world. And that requires self-control, because it was a problem 2,000 years ago for believers to have their minds going all over the place. It's not just us that suddenly have, wow, we have such hard times because there are so many stimuli. The fact remains, the warnings of Scripture recognize that humanity doesn't change. The means of distracting us are perhaps different, but the underlying issue of self-control over your hearts and minds hasn't changed. That ultimately was the focus of verse 13, was you've got to get your thinking in line to live correctly. But all of that really brings us to verse 14. So follow along. I'm going to read verse 13 again, but I'm going to read all the way down to verse 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. "...as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy." For purposes of our discussion, I really struggled with an outline. I like to use an outline normally to help my thoughts be more orderly and to help us think through the text. But sometimes an outline can obscure truth, and so I was really struggling. So I do have an outline, but don't pay as much attention to the outline as the substance of what is being said. But in verses 14 through 16, we really have the principles for living a God-pleasing life. I think if I talk to any one of you individually and I ask, do you want your life to please God? I think, I mean, I can't picture anybody would say, no, 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 I thought about it, I don't really want that. You know, maybe half the time that's enough. No, I mean, we want to live that way. And I think what we have in these simple verses are principles that allow us to do it. And so I've divided it up into three principles but I'm praying that, again, the outline doesn't get in the way of the application. In fact, and this isn't in my notes, but I was thinking about this, there's a sense in which I've looked forward to and dreaded this verse since I said I was going to teach in First Peter. I have looked forward to teaching it and I have dreaded teaching it ever since I thought we're going to go through this. Because I know the verse is something you've probably heard before. Unless you're just brand new to church, you've probably heard these verses or verses like them. And they're daunting. They're hard. There's one sense in which they're simple. But when it comes to living it out, this is hard to do. So, I'm going to cover these principles, but I'm also going to try and be encouraging you, even as I pray that the Lord will convict and challenge me and you with what's transpiring here. So, the first principle from this text for living a godly life is this embrace your true identity. The first principle for living a God pleasing life embrace your true identity. This verse, 14, starts with a simple expression, as obedient children. Most English translations, I I teach from the New American Standard, but I always look at other English translations, particularly the ones that I think others are using at Lakeside, and you'll all find something very, very similar. But there's a lot that jumps out when you dig a little deeper To what is going on here. Now part of this is just comfort. And it goes with all that Peter's already been saying. It's not news to you. It's not news to the New Testament. That when you come to faith in Christ. You become one of God's children. Praise the Lord for that. In fact in Romans 8 verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. That we are children of God. So when the writer, who is Peter, says, As obedient children, there's one sense in which that just jumps out at us. And we go, okay, yes, we're children of God. But the way this is phrased is not a command in and of itself. In other words, this is not saying to us, You be obedient. We're going to get to that. But this says, As obedient children, and the way it is phrased, the way it is presented It is assuming something already to be the case. The point of the text in the original language is that this is dealing with the essence of our nature. If I state it more accurately, the essence of our new nature. Our nature in Christ. Peter's not so much calling us to do something, saying, well, as obedient children... I want you to be obedient. What he's saying is, you are obedient, children. He's saying, this is already your nature. This is already your character. It calls to mind in my mind, and I didn't write it in my notes, but Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. What the writer is basically saying is, if you are a child of God, you are obedient. That is of your nature, because a child takes on the nature of his parents, and biblically speaking, you're either a child of God or a slave of Satan. In Second Peter, he talks about us, in 2 Peter 1, 4, he talks about us becoming partakers of the divine nature. In other words, we are of God's nature if we're God's children, the contrast is what Jesus said to the religious leaders about what their nature was, what type of children they were. In John 8:44, he said this, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what the writer is doing goes beyond just an introductory clause. What he's telling us is who we really are. That's what he's been telling us in the introductory verses. But he's saying a lot right there. Here's my ultimate point, which I think is the ultimate point of the text. I sort of gave a brief overview of verse 13. That the point of verse 13 is to think correctly one of the areas where we need to exercise self-control and correct thinking is when we look in the mirror. And I don't mean looking in the mirror and wishing we had more hair or less hair depending on where it is on your face or wishing we look different. No, I'm talking about when you look into the mirror properly understanding what your true nature really is. In many respects, I think this is one of the toughest challenges we face. And it's a challenge that isn't helped by two things that I think exist in the church. And they're both destructive just for different reasons. One of the burdens of my heart when I was a new believer was that I thought most people in churches that I knew were deceiving themselves because they were content, they thought they were good with God. And yet, from according to the scripture, they were lost and going to hell. I think that's a big chunk, if not the majority. In fact, I I do think it's the majority. The majority of people in America who identify themselves as Christians are lost and going to hell. I think that's true. I think America has cornered the market on the wide road. We've just got people plowing down the wide road. And so, in one sense... One of the burdens I had of calling into ministry is to tell people, Wake up. You think you're okay, but you're going to hell. And I know that because that was me for many of my adult years. And so there's one hand where I want to always challenge people to do what Paul said test yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. I want that to always be at the forefront of teaching because we're always in danger of having people in the church who are spiritually dead that think everything's okay. That's never a futile exercise. It's always necessary. I think it always will be. And particularly in America, where Christianity is so intertwined in certain areas, particularly in the southern areas, Christianity is intertwined with culture. We always have to give a wake-up call to unbelievers who are rubbing elbows with believers, and they think because of that they're okay. But that is not what I want to address with you this morning, although always pay attention. What I think Peter is talking about, or at least what I think his teaching allows us to do, is deal with genuine believers who are struggling in believing that their sins are truly forgiving. What do I mean? God doesn't see us as we see ourselves. When I look in the mirror... I see, I think differently than anybody else because I know me. So I look in the mirror and I see primarily a sinner. Somebody who has, after 20 plus years of being a Christian, still struggles daily against sin. I see somebody who knows more scripture than most people that have ever lived and yet still struggles to apply what he knows. I look in the mirror and I see my failures more than anything else. Now sometimes my failures are obscured by my pride. But when I clear away the pride, I don't like what I see a lot of the time. In fact, what goes through my mind often is what you find in Romans chapter 7. In fact, turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 18, continuing all the way through verse 24, it says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which swells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Probably I'm not alone. But that's the type of thing that I see when I look in the mirror. I see struggles. I see failures. Yet, even as I tell you that, I recognize that's wrong. I can't live under a cloud of failure and condemnation. And neither can you. Whatever your struggles or failures or past sins, know this if you are saved, you're not under a cloud. In fact, looking back down at Romans 7, in my own heart, I look away from the mirror after I read Wretched Man. But look what Paul goes on to say. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think a lot of us need to meditate on that. We are not condemned if we know Christ. We may condemn ourselves. And let me be clear, when you sin, you should feel bad about it. You should repent of it. First John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But once you've confessed your sin, once you've turned away from it, don't allow it to be an anchor dragging you to the bottom of despair. There are a lot of Christians that don't think rightly about themselves. They think of themselves as condemned when God sees us as obedient children. When you start to percolate on that in your mind, it makes the whole thing crazy. Why in the world should I have those kind of privileges Why in the world, knowing what I know about me over the last umpteen years, how in the world can I be the recipient of such grace? Praise the Lord we all are. In fact, jumping ahead, and I'm not getting there, but in verse 15 it says, But like the Holy One who called you, God called us to Himself. God took the initiative. And this is what I want you to think about he called you knowing full well what you really are. Nobody else knows what's going on in your heart. God called you anyway. He knew. As bad as you think you are, and you were probably worse, God called you anyway. God didn't look around for an all star team. If He did, none of us would be picked. And yet God reached down and saw broken, weak, repetitive sinners with not an inkling of true spiritual desire. And God said, come to me. That's why Peter at the beginning of his book is praising God for that. Blessed Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So let me just encourage you this morning. I don't know what your struggles are. I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror. Maybe you're not like me. I always have to be careful because my own weaknesses can't be projected on everybody else. But if there's anybody... That struggles. Stop right now. And recognize who you are. When God looks at you. He doesn't see your sin. He sees you cleansed. By the blood of Christ. You're clean. In fact. He sees you clothed. In the righteousness of Christ. Christ was perfectly obedient to everything God the Father said. We get that obedience on our account. So when Peter says, as obedient children, it's not wishful thinking, it's reality. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's who you are, that's your nature, and you need to accept that nature. Don't try and undo what God did for you. By your own guilt and condemnation. Again. This is not an excuse to say. Well then I'll just sin while I want. Because it doesn't matter. Absolutely not. In fact I'm going to talk about. How we should live. But I'm telling you to get an attitude adjustment today. Embrace your true identity. Because in spite of us. God loves us. In spite of who we are on the inside god sent his son to die for us and i think of the song when satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward i look and see him there who made an end to all my sin that's our identity embrace it now the second principle for living a God-pleasing life is this. First, it's embrace your true identity. Second, forsake your old temptations. Forsake your old temptations. I want to encourage you, but this is where the scriptures, it encourages and it convicts and challenges at the same time. And we get to the crux of what makes all this difficult. We do have to think rightly about who we are in Christ and then we have to live differently. God calls us to go to war against what's left of that old self. Verse 14 says this, as obedient children, again, that's our identity, that's who we are, not who we're to become, that's who we are, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Now, as a starting point, when he talks about the lust, we tend to think of lust as sexual thing, but the word in biblical terminology, isn't even inherently negative. In fact, there are some uses of that word that's positive. It just talks about a strong desire. But in this case, Peter is clearly talking about negative. He's talking about strong desires of the wrong type. And what he's telling us is while our new identity is in Christ as obedient children, our old way was to pursue evil desires. The ignorance doesn't mean that we are not culpable. It just means we were spiritually darkened. And what he's saying is don't be conformed to what you used to be. You can almost say you're embracing your new identity, your true identity, but you got to run away from the old man. You got to run away from the old identity. This idea of being conformed is like being molded into something or being patterned after something. I think of any variety of things. Sometimes it's in food, sometimes it's in metal. But you take a mold and you press it and the thing you press becomes that shape. What Peter recognizes is is that if we are not at war with what we used to be, then the old patterns and the old practices that dominated our lives can start to shape us again, but not towards godliness. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 tells us what a child of disobedience looks like. You know, we're as obedient children, That's our new nature. Our old nature is described well. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We are now children of obedience. We used to be sons of disobedience. What Peter says is whatever you do, don't let yourself be conformed to what you used to be. What you used to be should not control how you live today. It's a negative and a positive side, but here it's the negative side. Put these things off. Get rid of them. Romans six eleven to fourteen describes this well. Romans six eleven to fourteen. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God for sin shall not be master over you for you are not under law but under grace Romans 12:2 uses The exact same phraseology as Peter. Do not be conformed and do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Being conformed to this world means being patterned into what the world wants everyone to look like. Peter is saying the exact same thing. Our old life was drawing us to a certain end result. And if you continued in unbelief, for most of you, the world would be very happy with you. Because you'd look like them. At the very least, you'd look like one subset of the lost and dying world. And the scripture over and over has pictures of what our life used to be that we're not supposed to go back to. Colossians three five. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. We're not supposed to be conformed to those things. Those were our former lusts. We're supposed to run away from that. Galatians five nineteen to twenty one talks about the deeds of the flesh. What are the former lusts that you're not supposed to be conformed to? That's a good list. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. If you didn't find some of you in that list, I'll help you find some other place. Because we're all identified. Here's the point. Peter recognizes that we all come from that place. And it's our responsibility because of our true identity as God's children to make sure that we don't fall back into that old pattern and become pressed into looking what we used to look like. Let me tell you that you need to get rid of anything in your life that pulls you back to your old sinful patterns that's hard to do because a lot of things that pull us towards old sinful patterns aren't in and of themselves sinful but we deceive ourselves a lot to think well I'm okay with that (laughs) I can handle that well yeah I could see where that would be a problem for some people but me with my spiritual maturity I can do those things and I'm okay all the while we're slowly morphing into a different shape And those things are eating away bit by bit and chipping away at our new identity, trying to conform us to our old identity. The old sinful wants and desires will rear their head at unexpected opportunities. It's our job to kill them. Make a clean break. You know your own weaknesses. It's an illustration and it's not application for you but as an illustration of this when I was first saved I had at the time a hundred and something CDs you know now nobody has CDs anymore you just download the music in and of itself that music wasn't all horrific but I needed to get rid of it because all it did was remind me of how I lived in the worst darkest points of my life When I heard those songs, those songs reminded me of events. And they weren't godly events. I knew for me, at that point in my life, I could not listen to those things with a clear conscience. Because they drew me back to what I was trying to get away from. I don't know what that may be for you. Whatever it is, though, be honest with yourself. Forsake it. Run away from it. Whatever you have to do, don't allow yourself to be conformed to your former desires. Now, that's a negative. That's putting something off. Now we're going to put something on. It's our third point. Three principles for living a God-pleasing life. First, embrace your true identity. Second, forsake your old temptations. Third, pursue holiness in everything. Pursue holiness in everything. Now, this is one of those statements that a pastor can say, and everybody rolls their eyes, because, okay, of course. Yeah, I'm supposed to. But this is Scripture. Scripture. Peter said this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. But, strong contrast, don't do this, do this. But, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This cannot be a more comprehensive command. This is a command to every one of us. This isn't a command for certain people in the church. Well, we need some to be holy. We need some to. No, this is every person who is an obedient child of God by nature. We are to strive for perfection. God's holiness is hard for us even to get our minds around because we have never been completely holy in our thinking. And in our hearts. But holiness is the complete absence of any taint or sin. There is nothing impure around God. There is nothing that taints Him. There is nothing that stains Him. The best you can do with holiness is what it isn't. You'll notice if you ever study theology, a lot of the characteristics of God are really described by what they aren't. Because we're sinful humans. All we can say is it's not like this, it's not like this, it's not like this. Because God is outside of us, he's other than us. And yet when he communicates with us, he communicates in a way that we can understand. It's just that our understanding is often in the negative. It's a complete absence of sin or evil or taint. God is to be our model. Rather than being conformed or patterned after an old sinful self, we're supposed to be conformed and patterned after the perfect model, which is God himself. A particular commentator that I love, I rely on him when he's written a commentary on certain books, he said this, and I'm quoting him, As holy, and he's talking about God, as holy, he loves all that is pure and good and hates, abominates, and punishes all that is sinful. What we need to constantly do is make sure that we celebrate what is pure and good. That's what we go to. That we don't gravitate into sinful arenas, but rather we consciously strive at all times to reach for the light. Now we understand, and it's taught in Scripture, we will not find perfection on earth. We'll never be perfectly holy, although we should From the moment of our salvation to the moment of our being reunited with the Lord, either through death or His return, we should be going up in holiness. But we're supposed to strive for something greater. We're supposed to do this in every area of our lives. Every thought you have, you're supposed to think holy. Every word that you utter from your mouth, you're supposed to speak words that are holy. Everything that you think about, you're supposed to think about it in terms of holiness. Everything you do, every action that you take from the time you put your feet on the floor until the time you lay your head on the pillow is supposed to be driven by the mindset that says, I want to do what makes me holy. Here's why I dreaded teaching that. Because I know I don't think that way all the time. I'm convicted of it. I'm reminded of it. And it's not because I actively sit around thinking, I want to think unholy things. It's because of laziness. Or laxity. Or carelessness. To where I'm just being amused by something on TV. Or I'm just playing a game. And again, I'm not saying you can't have diversions. What I'm saying is... Even your diversions should be purposeful. And I think if you're anything like me, life gets stressful and you're tired and sometimes you just want to shut down. But even in those moments when we would be legitimately justified in pulling aside to rest, we should be trying to do it in a way that is holy. Now the reason he gives in verse 16 is simply because of authority. It is written. That, that's a formula often used in Scripture. It's basically saying it can't be any more authoritative. And it's an ongoing terminology. In other words, this is the authority. It has been the authority. It will be the authority. It was written. It is written. It will be written. This doesn't change. Now, he quotes from a particular part of Leviticus, but what you find is at least three different places in Leviticus where truths along these lines, be holy for I am holy, are taught to the Old Testament nation of Israel. God is saying this applies to his children today as well. It really mirrors the words of Jesus, Matthew five forty eight. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we are honest with ourselves, these verses are the source of all struggle in the Christian walk. If we're doing it, things are good. If we're not doing it, that's when we struggle. Now, what we're doing of a sinful nature might fit with a thousand other verses, but the fact remains, if we're sinning, we're not holy. If we're thinking sinful thoughts, we're not holy. If we're being lazy and neglectful, we're not being holy. This is hard. But it's not impossible. And before I got into the hard part, it's why I wanted to stress to you the good part. Which is God knows your struggle. And He loved you anyway. God knew how far you were going to fall short. And He sent Jesus to die for you anyway. God knew... That on December 4th, 2016, you weren't going to be anywhere near as holy as he wants you to be. And he still called you. He still redeemed you. He still reserved a heaven and place for you. And God does not change his mind. I think that's the greatest comfort I ever find in faith. Is that no matter what, God is not going to cast out his children. Again, that doesn't tolerate or justify or excuse sin. We have an opportunity as a church family to celebrate the Lord's table, and we're not supposed to do it in an unworthy manner. So I pray that if you have unconfessed sin, you'll repent of it, you'll acknowledge it. But praise the Lord that He called you and He'll keep you. He sets a high standard. Let me close with this reading. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 31. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's really what we're talking about. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Join me as I close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I know in my heart I want to be holy. I thank you, Lord, that you've worked in my life over the 20 plus years of me being a believer and you've improved me dramatically in many areas, but Lord, I know the areas where I still fall short. I pray, Lord, for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Lord, help us not to be conformed to our old selves. Lord, I pray that we would not fall victim to condemnation. Lord, when we begin to think that we're not worthy, I pray that you would short-circuit that thinking and, and let us rejoice in the fact, of course we're not. If we were worthy, you wouldn't have needed to send your Son to save us. Lord, help us embrace our identity as your children and help us to strive for holiness. Lord, help us set aside anything that would distract us, that would hinder us, that would lead us to sin. And help us, Lord, to be holy as you are holy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.